You're listening to Leading in the City, brought to you by Lead NYC. So five habits pastors should practice. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this to his spiritual son Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Out of the contemporary English version, Paul says it this way. Timothy, my child, Christ Jesus is kind, and you must let him make you strong. You have often heard me teach. Now I want you to tell these things to followers who can be trusted to tell others. So there are things, there's some things I learned along the way that I, I think will be very helpful to you. And for you, it may just be a reminder. Number one, as a habit, and I'm not putting this in any order of priority, but these are five habits. Number one is this, grow continuously. So many leaders, pastors, stop growing. You stop growing in God. To grow in God requires shrinkage. The great theologian Angel Martinez says that no peacocks can get saved because you can't strut to Calvary. You can only go on your hands and on your knees. So when I think about growing in God, it's about, it's, I love what G.K. Chesterton once said. The fatal metaphor of progress, which means leaving things behind us, has utterly obscured the real idea of growth, which means leaving things inside us. So growth is about getting stuff out of you that needs to be out of you and depositing things in you that needs to be in you. So when I say grow continuously, I'm saying that you're growing in God. I get that. You're growing Christ-like. I get that. But I'm also saying grow to your potential. And sometimes we don't see our potentials because the people that we hang out with we're much stronger than they are. So we stop growing because why do I need to really grow? Because the people around, I'm so much farther than they are that it's, it's, it's futile. I have a young man in my congregation and just on Sunday night, he got qualified to be in the Olympics. And this is his second time in the Olympics. He was there in 2016 and now he's there again in judo. But being a part of the American Judo, you know, the Federation, and being on that tier of athleticism, there's nobody in the country that he can do Judo with to stay on top of his game. So what the American Judo and the Olympians have to do, the Olympic Association, they have to fly people in from different countries to what they call play Judo with him. Why? Because if not, his his qualities as an athlete would depreciate simply because he's no longer challenged. And I wonder how many of you are at a certain level in your walk with the Lord, not because you don't have potential, because you're no longer challenging yourself. I had to challenge myself. And so I, and some of you have known this, I, I, I applied to this in this unique 
program, social, social innovation, a postgraduate degree in social innovation at Cambridge in England. Got in, it's in a business school. It's a secular program. It's social innovation. It's coming up with innovative ideas to, deep with, to deal with deep-rooted social problems. My research interest has always been on multiracial relationships, multiracial organizations. That's where I hang my hat. And so when I went there, just to give you a context, when I went there, this is an institution from <laughs> that's, you know, that's over 800 years old, so from 1209. And so some 90 Nobel Prize winners have come out of Cambridge. And so when you're there, I tell people, I said, if you think you are some peacock, you better keep your feathers tucked in because there are bigger peacocks there. And so, and so, you know, and so in, it's a two-year program I just finished up and did my dissertation. And in my dissertation, what the, the British system is, they assign someone to you that walks you through this, this, la this last leg of, the, of, your, of your training. And so I said to my dissertation chairperson, I said, I want to graduate with distinction. That's British language to mean 4.0. And so I said, I want you to challenge me. I don't want you to make me just, just, just coast in. Now, I already have a PhD, and so you know, I, you know, I have that, but that's not the issue. I said, I want you to challenge me, because I can get stuck in where I am and think that I'm okay, and think that I'm, I, I've arrived. And then she writes back in this email, I welcome the opportunity. Why did I say what I said? <laughs> After five or six redrafts, now I've written 20 books. After five or six redrafts, and she's jacking me up, and I'm getting angry. And when I'm getting, uh, getting angry, then I, I, I take a step back, and I look at the comments that she's making, and then I realize, She's right. And so I make the adjustments, and when I find myself then I'm being challenged. Then she, I said, this dissertation, I've read a bunch of dissertations at Cambridge. This is better than, and she said, you said you wanted to graduate with distinction. Those dissertations are not distinctions. All I'm saying to you is this. Sometimes we as pastors are hanging out with chickens and we need to hang out with eagles. And if you hang out with chickens, you pray chicken prayers. You have chicken faith. You have chicken level of growth. You chicken pastor. You have chicken style leadership. If you want to grow to your potential, you need to then be challenged. And one of the things that you must be challenged with is having mentors and coaches. We as individuals in ministry, we seldom have coaches. We seldom have coaches in regards to leadership coach or preaching coach or diversity coach or you know, some type of management coach. We, we don't have coaches. We think that we're okay. And I'm simply saying to you that you need to recognize the value of a coach. Look at some of the legendary athletes. Serena Williams, she has a coach. Even actors, Tom Hanks, he has an acting coach. When you look at even football players, Tom Brady, he tells us that his quarterback coach was the late Tom Martinez. All I'm saying to you is this. You need coaching. Why? Coaches are not for scrubs. Don't get that wrong. 
I've worked with the New York Giants and New York Jets over the years in certain areas of, of leadership and things like that. And I found out, I don't even watch football, by the way, but I found out that the average NFL team has 15 coaches. So these guys are making money, millions and millions of money. Their athleticism are the best in the field. Anybody in the NFL is the best of the best of the best in their field in the world. And yet they have, on average, 15 coaches to help them get better. The fact that you have a coach doesn't mean that you're deficient or incompetent. The fact that you have a coach means that you've recognized that you need to fulfill your potential. I remember about six, seven years ago, I woke up one morning, and I'm just on point one, but I'll stay within my time frame to get to my next point. Yeah, I'm conscious of time. One of my best friends says that every time I see Ireland, there's always a clock next to him. I just <laughs> but, but I woke up about you know, just five, seven years ago, I woke up that morning, and I just said to myself, I don't know why I said it to myself, but I just had this gnawing thought that I couldn't shake, that I need a preaching coach. And I thought, I think I'm okay, I'm all right. People get saved, and my wife is happy with my preaching. I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> you understand, that's how, I, <laughs> that's how I deemed that I was okay. I called up one of my old profs. I said, Russell, this is David Ireland. He said, oh, and we talked for a few, couple of minutes. He said, now, David, I understand you. Why are you calling? I said, I want, I'm looking for a preaching coach, and I'm wondering if, we, if you would serve in that capacity in my life. He says, short answer, yes. Long answer, why? I said, I feel as if there's some opportunities that God has for me, but I've not worked on my craft sufficiently, and I just need another perspective to mold and shape me in my proficiency. I said, now, I have tools that I use when I'm coaching people and preaching. I can send these tools to you, and you can use them, do whatever you want to do with them, and use them in an evaluative way towards me. He said, oh, that's okay, but let me get back to you in a week or two, and we'll take it from there. He gives me a ring in two weeks, and he says, I've assembled a team of 15 people that will help coach you. Said, Whoa. He said, I have on the team, I have some people that have PhDs and their emphasis in homiletics. I have individuals that are all across the denominational lines. I have some atheists. I have some agnostics. I have individuals from other countries. I have some you know, women. I have men. I have teenagers. I have young kids. I want them to listen to your sermon and give feedback. Here's the cost you have to pay in order to, for each of these 15 people. Now, this deck has been stacked. I, I just thought I was going to have one guy. He has 15 people. And some hate preachers. So I figured, you know, I, I grew up in New York City. I, I understand the game. I said, let me send you some sermons. I mean, I'm talking about sermons. I, when I preached, I thought the devil almost got saved when I preached that sermon. I mean, this sermon, I, uh, oh, let me send that one. Let me send that one. And then he said, I don't want you to send me anything. Everything I need is on the internet. I hate the internet. I remember preaching in Cuba before the embargo was even lifted, and I don't know how they got sermons that were smuggled out from Cuba that he was listening to. I, I don't know, but they got a hold of it. But what I want you to know is this. A coach doesn't create resentment. A coach helps to tweak, to adjust, to give you a perspective that you may not normally have. And that was very helpful to me. And one of my weaknesses in preaching was, when I preach on things that are difficult, I make it seem like it's easy. And one of the best responses that I got from that team was that they, they heard me preach on evangelism. 
And they said, all we wanted you to say was evangelism was hard. And you never admitted it. My point, if you're going to grow continuously, you need to put yourself in a growth posture. And that may take people that may be a coach, that may be individuals that will challenge you, but they're not, they're not impressed by you. Nor are they satisfied with where you are because the aim is to get you to fulfill your potential. Second habit that pastors should practice, reinvent yourself. Let me tell you, this is hard. I've been pastoring, as I said, 35 years. You know how many times I've reinvented myself over the 35 years? So often that sometimes I have to pull out my wallet, look at my driver's license just to see what my name is. Because I've reinvented myself. And what I'm suggesting is this. Biblical values are stay constant. That doesn't change. Your essential beliefs stay constant. That doesn't change. What I am saying is that style changes. Methodologies change. Assumptions change. The way you present yourself and the content of your message must change. James Barry, who's a novelist and creator of the Peter Pan character, once said, the most useless are those who never change through the years. An anonymous quote on change was, nothing stops an organization faster than people who believe that the way you worked yesterday is the best way to work tomorrow. Oh, how we found that out with COVID. Some that didn't hold to the theology of the internet, they morphed their theology because they know I had no other way to change, to reach their congregation. I mean, they cursed it beforehand. Now they bless it. And, and I, I must uh, beg your forgiveness because I had to even adjust my theology. I, I believed in the internet, but now I had to add to the, you know, to, you know, to, to the fivefold ministry. There's a sixthfold. There's not only the apostle, the prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. It's the IT guy. The IT guy is right up there. I don't know how Paul forgot to put him in Ephesians 4, but the IT guy is up there. So I, I got to put him there. <laughs> and it's, it's, these are things that we learn along the way. So you have to really, when you deal with the issue of reinventing yourself, you have to pivot. You have to change quickly. You have to understand how to pivot quickly. And so the idea of what it means to change is that change certain assumptions. I mean, it says, when, when, I, when you think about engaging culture, culture constantly change. The gospel doesn't change, but the way you engage culture does. And the essence of the Bible doesn't change, but the way you articulate the Bible has to change if you want to be relevant. If you don't want to be relevant and you want to be extinct as a preacher, you've been fossilized, you've been mummified. If that's what you want, keep doing what you're doing without reinventing yourself. You've got to reinvent yourself. And oftentimes that requires even focus groups. And you may not be the one that conducts the focus group. You get someone else to conduct it. You give them the questions. Let them ask, how are you being interpreted? How am I coming across? What are you hearing? What are you not hearing? What are you feeling? How are you responding? Because these things help to shape 
who you are so you last. So if you want irreligious people to come to Christ when you preach, they have to be attractive, attracted to what you say. So what I've learned over the years, and I'm not saying that I've arrived, I'm still a work in progress. What I've learned over the years, even as I teach on the topic of hell, I don't want to be silent about what the Bible teaches on hell, but I don't start the conversation that there's a hell. Because if I do, then I'm already closed them off to the idea because they don't believe in hell if they're religious people. So I start the conversation on the topic of justice. And the fact that if someone has done something so heinous, so diabolical, and yet their prison sentence doesn't reflect the crime that they've committed, all of us inside our hearts cry for that justice has not been fully served. And then I backdoor my way. I said, let me tell you how Jesus responded to this. And then I backdoor back back my way into it. So my point is that God is involved in the ongoing reinventing of the preacher. And so I have to constantly then change my methodology in order to be able to connect with the irreligious. I mentioned that, uh, you know, that my research interest has always been in race and diversity and that kind of thing. My dissertation that I just finished was, was the, the technical title, How Can You Develop Intercultural Competence Training That Appeals to White Leaders? In other words, how do you help the white guy become more cross-cultural? And I'm saying that because there's been a diversity resistance, a diversity fatigue. That's on a lot of races, but particularly on whites because they feel scapegoated. They feel white bashed, or, or bashed, I should say, and, and demoralized and demonized when it comes to anything race related. And so my job and my emphasis was how do I create a way to appeal to someone who's white that they ex are excited about it? And that's what I did. Now, one of the things I discovered in that, and I'm connecting to the reinventing, one of the things I discovered is that people, when it comes to race relations, you have to use storytelling. So if you just simply speak and teach in a systematic, analytical way, people's hearts are closed. But you go through the back door with a story, and you frame the information in a story form because everybody likes to hear stories, even the most intellectual. My point, have you used storytelling even in your preaching? So when I preach on the woman at the well, John, 4, John chapter four with Jesus, he has to go through the Samaria and a Samaritan woman at the well. I, after I've read the important verses of the text, I'll tell the listeners, the audience, the congregation, I'll say, come sit next to me on a rock and let's watch Jesus as he interacts with the Samaritan woman and let's learn some of his intercultural skills. Come sit next to me. I bring them into the story. And my point to you is this. Reinvent yourself. And when I start praying and saying, God, give me ways to connect with culture today that keeps the gospel relevant and keeps me as the gospel preacher relevant, it is amazing how God gives you creative ideas. You would never know that until you pray those specific questions and ask God. So I want you to see that you've got to reinvent yourself. Third, habit. Pastors should practice 
reframe problem relationships. We're in the people business. We're in the relationship business. We understand people. That's what we do. The church, it's made up of people. But oftentimes, we don't experience our potential or we don't reinvent ourselves because relationships that we are saddled with, connected with, or in our inner circle, outer circle, whatever, some of them are problem relationships. My point would be this. Have you considered reframing it? I was meeting with one of my spiritual sons who planted a church, and he had these three couples that were major leaders in the church. Good people, solid people. But they were so much older than he was. I mean, these are deep pocket people. Multi-millionaires, very, you know, very thriving, flourishing careers. They love the Lord. And I can see when they greeted one another, you can just sense the tension. When they walked out of the, the room, I said to him, I said, Brian, these guys don't respect you. He said, yeah, I know. I said, here's what I'd like you to do. Reframe the relationship Stop trying to pastor them in the paradigm of pastoring that you have been exposed to and you lock in on. Just be their friend. Sometimes we have these problem relationships because we have not reframed them. I understand that I don't pastor everybody in my congregation. To some, I'm a Bible teacher. To some, I pastor them. To some, I'm their spiritual father. To some, I'm just another guy. And I understand that. And my job is not to force them to try to force them to look at me in a certain way. I'm past that. In the early days, you looked for that. Afterwards, ah. So reframe the relationship. How do you reframe the relationship? Clarify expectations. Sometimes you're expecting a certain level of effectiveness from people when their 100% is equivalent to your 5%. Their level of gifting is not where yours is. And you're expecting them to produce and to perform on your level, and you're always frustrated. Change it. Reframe the relationship. Someone once asked me, what was the, the, one of the big turning points in Christ church that caused you to grow? I said, I, I remember distinctly when our church was around 700, we had a tough time breaking the thousand barrier and I said let me tell you I went to this one conference that was called breaking the thousand barrier and I did I did literally I did and the only thing that made sense after all the speakers spoke for those three days the only thing that made sense to me was one guy got up and said I had to change my staff because they were working off of my energy and I had, to create I had to bring in people that created their own energy sphere. Man, I went in my pocket. I, need to <laughs> I gotta pay that guy because what I did when I went back home over a period of time, it wasn't just necessarily changing the staff, was clarifying the giftings of people and not expecting anything more from how God 
has designed them. And so what I learned was that pastors, that my paradigm, my theology was pastors are the ones leading the church. Then I recognized not necessarily they're leading aspects of the church, theological, shepherding, care, that aspect, but they're not leading the organizational, the administrative, the finance, the finance, the, that aspect of governance. And so when I bifurcated it and I brought up on people on staff that were good at business, good at understanding organization, good at dealing with people management, and then place pastors in care positions and functioning that, they thrive. My frustration dropped significantly, and, and the church just blew through the thousand barrier. That was many, many years ago. And the point I'm bringing out is this. It wasn't that I got smarter, though I want to get smarter. It was simply me understanding that reframe the problem. This is not a problem. This is an issue that deals with identity. What is the identity of people? How has God wired them? I got a guy on my team, he always sees problems. And at first I'd get upset because you have a meeting, boom, he has a problem. He sees a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem. Now, Instead of me getting mad at the guy, and not I'm putting on my poker face, I'm smiling. I got Joab right there. Okay. But instead of me doing that, I now said, well, that's how God's wired him, to have an innate ability to see these flaws. Why not lob him the project ball, throw in the underhand? So I would say to him, let's call his name Stephen. Stephen. I love your critical mind. Tell me some things in this, this project that we're about to launch that we need to be careful of. All of a sudden, I just reframed the relationship. I gave Stephen the very thing that God's wired him to see before. So my expectation was no longer that I'm upset because he's only seeing the flaws. That's his gifting. So I just, all I did was say, Function the way God's gifted you, and I'm cool with that. In order, and also when you're reframing problem relationships, it's not just how reframing clarifies expectation. Reframing ensures acceptance. Everyone wants to be accepted. Everyone. And when you practice acceptance, you're, you're acknowledging the God in a person you're acknowledging and recognizing that you're not God. You recognize that life is messy and complicated, not simply black and white, but there are many gray areas. But when you reframe the relationship, it always deals with cellular issues of identity. But everyone wants to be accepted, and you must reframe a relationship so that there's always a sense of acceptance. If you can't practice acceptance, acceptance doesn't mean that I, I accept every aspect of that person's flaws and their brokenness, but I accept the person. Never want, never desire to be in a situation, and I've been in some situations because of my gifting was so different than that of the senior leader, that the senior leader always had a problem with me, right? Because he didn't know what to do with me. And it wasn't that my, I was disloyal or my motivation was bad. It was just he didn't know what to do with someone who had different gifts than he did. 
And sometimes we in pastoral ministry, we don't know what to do with people that have gifts that are different than ourselves. And every time I left that meeting, I always, I used to tease, and I would tell one of my uh, colleagues, you know, Anthony Franklin, I said, Anthony, I always feel like David Iscariot, Judas's brother. <laughs> I'm making that up. <laughs> but I always felt that way because you know, when you feel rejected yeah. based on how God's wired you, God's wired you with certain ways that you think. You're, you're certain, and they look at it as a problem rather than looking at it as an asset. And so what we have done is create problems unnecessarily because we have not reframed them. So I want you to go back to your home, to your parish, to your leadership, to your churches, to your area, to your organization, and start looking to see how can I reframe problem relationships so I can be able to you know, extract from that relationship relationship, the nutrients that God in fact has placed in that individual or individuals so the organization is not stymied because I am a leader, as a leader, is pretty incompetent when it comes to people management. And I'm saying to you, you can change that. And many times it's just changing the way you look at that person in terms of what are your expectations of that individual. Are you with me still? Good. May I now bring you into the fourth habit that pastors should practice. And that is, guard your heart. Solomon was so true, so right. In Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What do I mean by guarding my heart? Guarding my heart that disappointment don't destroy me. The ministry is a place of great disappointments. We're asked to do a task that we don't have enough money to accomplish. We're asked to build things and (laughs) we lack resources. We're asked to lead people that sometimes don't want to be led. We're asked to do things for God and many times we feel so incompetent. Think about Moses' first response to God's challenge. Go into Egypt and, and deliver my people. What is Moses' response? I can't go. (laughs) <laughs> I can't even speak properly, Lord. I'm, I, I can't. Look, already quickly, there's that sense of I'm not enough. So I have to constantly monitor my emotional state. And even now, post-COVID, you know where a lot of guys are? Is that we're using the metric of success that all it's going to do is create disappointments. We're using numbers. How many people were there this week? How many were online? May I suggest to you, don't use numbers as a metric of success because it is the wrong metric. Let me suggest some better metrics that won't trigger this spiral downturn where you're in this place of disappointment. Use growing disciples. Use the presence of God. Use spiritual hunger. Use momentum. Those are worthy metrics. Because you're never going to get the number that you want, and when you do, you're going to then quickly set another numerical goal. And you're always chasing numbers. And I see a lot of guys that are no longer in ministry now, that when I began, their churches, I mean, you were saying, my God, I, I was telling one of the guys here, he said he just planted a church, he has about 40 people. I said, 40 people? I couldn't even count 40. It took me like four years to see 40 people when we started. I said, 40, I said, brother, you're doing great. But I saw a lot of guys, they started the same time I did. 
And after he's, and I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, and I'll use more technical term, a rabbinic hyperbole. I'm going to just stretch the truth. <laughs> you know, you know, it, these guys had like 10,000 people in, after five weeks of ministry. And I'm saying, my God. I'm still counting. One, two, three. And then, let me count that person twice because they went to the bathroom. Four, five. I mean, it's, it's, we're using wrong metrics. And so this whole thing of COVID, it has created this, it calls us back to the central focus of the gospel. We have been, we, we accepted God's call into ministry to become disciple makers. We accept, accepted this call into ministry to be able to help people grow in passion for Jesus. I remember the, one of the scariest moments of preaching for me was when I was invited back to the seminary that I graduated from before the flood, you know, Noah's flood. <laughs> and my job was to preach to the profs. These are the guys that taught me when I was 24, 25. And I'm supposed to get them all ready, ready and rallied for a new teaching term, new semester. What am I, these are the guys who taught me the ABCs of the Bible. What am I gonna say to them? And I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm crying out to God. Because the worst place is to be embarrassed is in front of preachers. <laughs> and I just talked a simple thing. What was the question that troubled you so much that made you decide to become a seminary prof? That made you decide to become a lifelong student of the Bible? Can you dust off that question and know that this coming semester, there are young men and young women that are going to be sitting in your classroom with that same question. I got them. See, and I want you to have that same hunger. When God called you into ministry, why did you accept the call? It was a choice. He didn't drag you in. You said yes. Why? And all I'm saying to you is guard your heart so it doesn't get filled with disappointment. And guard your heart is, one of, the, one of the questions is, who's in my heart? And I'm not just talking about Jesus being in our hearts. I'm talking about what role models do I have in my heart? Because that is also a point of consternation and pain when I have wrong images in my heart. Wrong examples. I, I, it's, it's, a, it's so different when you ask the young hotshot preacher to come and preach at your church and they'll say things like this. This is what I've heard over the years. Hey, David, who'd you have there last? And who are some of the guys that have come through? And when you ask the spiritual fathers to preach, these are the questions they ask me. David, how's your wife doing? How are your children? They're not asking me those stupid questions that speak about nonsensical things because that's not their aspiration. It's not that. And I'm saying to you, who do you have in your heart as role models? Don't, don't put these, these, these hot shots there. It should be character guys that are there. Guys that, that, that they, they have clean hands and pure hearts. Let that be your aspiration. You want to finish well. You don't want to finish with scandal and all kinds of, of bad reputation. That's not what you want. One of my friends in ministry, Dr. R.T. Kendall, is in his 80s now. R.T., he says to me, David, would you pray for me? And I said, yeah, R.T., what would you like me to pray about? He said, David, pray that I finish well. 
And that's what I'm saying to you guys. Guard your heart. You want to finish well. No scandal. No disgrace to the gospel. You may not have the biggest church, but who cares? You may not have the most famous ministry, but who cares? You want to stand before God and say, God, I've done what you've asked me to do. No shame. No stain. That's what we need. And to do that, it's not sexy. It's not, it's not running with the guys that, that they look at the, the external as the, the issues, the, the Rolex watches, the, the, the clothing, the, you know, the expensive you know, cars and all that. And I'm not saying anything wrong with having nice clothing and cars, but spend money in experiences that are eternal and spend money with education that you can feed others. But, but don't let the thrills and the frills of ministry be what attracts you. See, you want to be able to have role models that can hold you accountable and challenge you in how you treat your wife and how you treat your children and how you have made space for others around you that have different gifts than you. They don't run as fast as you. They're not as gifted as you. They're not as eloquent as you. But when they come around you, they feel valued and they feel accepted by you because God's done a deep work inside of you. That's what I'm asking you to do as a minister so that you can be able to run the race and have longevity. I mean, think about it. That's the beauty of ministry, that you have longevity. And you have clean hands. And I'm not saying that any of us are perfect, including myself, but you, you're shooting for clean hands. That you don't have this kind of negative statements about the church, but you love the church, you love God's bride. And you treat the church not as a stepping stone to your own fame and visibility, but you treat the church with care. So you have to ask yourself about those things. And so I ask you then about ambition. What's your ambition? And mind you, there's nothing wrong with ambition because Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 26, when the mother of James and John started questioning, can you have my son? One of them sit on your right, one of your left. Here's what Jesus said. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He's not knocking ambition. In fact, the lack of ambition is unhealthy. The lack of ambition shows me that you're gripped by fear. Maybe fear of failure. Your fear, fear, fear of not making right decisions. You need to have ambition. But your ambition must be sober. And so your ambition must be kept in balance and in check. And so one of the things I strive to do is, that, is to keep this principle in front of me. Ambition that's healthy is when I live facing Jesus and I walk in humility and I have a deepening dependence on God. And so I try to create those boundaries in me and around me so that my ambition, it's, it's corralled. Because there are a lot of people that's falling left and right today. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because they've never put in check their ambition. And they've, and, and, and they've not put in check, which I'm going to move into my fifth habit, this particular habit, which we need to put in check, and that is renew your strength. Habit number five, renew your strength. What do I mean by that? Have sacred rhythms in your life. Don't be like what Chuck Swindoll warned us not to be. We don't need to be the sermonator. 
We're always, we're always preaching. We're always preaching. You always have a word from the Lord. You, you're always in a pulpit. When are you going to take your sacred rhythms and sacred rest? One university in Texas did a study on what is the equivalent of one hour of preaching in regards to labor and manual labor. And they found out that an hour of preaching is equal to eight hours of manual labor. Your body actually goes through the physical shock as if you're doing a construction worker's job after one hour of preaching. I'm not suggesting you preach for an hour, but if you do the math, it's very, very draining. And I'm not even, even referring to the, the adrenaline spikes that takes place in preaching. It's very fatiguing. And if you're not careful and you don't renew your strength, a lot of people fall morally, not because they're bad. They fall because they're tired. I love what Spurgeon says. I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. So what Spurgeon is advising is that we, 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 we have a life of prayer to renew our strength. Let me quote Spurgeon again. He said, don't be like the preacher who walks with a limp, where his leg of preaching was longer than his leg of prayer. You renew your strength in prayer. The preacher's prayer life is, is so significant to being effective in ministry. And that's where you bring your battles. You've got to bring them into the field of prayer. That's where you survey them, in the field of prayer. That's where you fight your enemies. It's in the field of prayer, in the place of prayer. And that's what's so critical when it comes to renewing your strength. And what I've learned over the years, I wish I had learned this earlier. I learned to put into my life some sacred rhythms. I preach four weeks straight, take two weeks off. Four weeks straight, two weeks off. And sometimes my off week is I'm preaching somewhere else because that recharges me. But I've learned I got to take these sacred rhythms. If not, I remember I was preaching in, in New Zealand. These guys had me preach 20 sermons in about a week. My last, I said, look guys, I started speaking Spanish. No mas, no mas, no mas. <laughs> and then I quoted my favorite Bible verse. I said, save yourselves. <laughs> I can't, I can't. You can save yourselves. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but, I, but, I, but I want you to really take this seriously, though. You've got to establish a principle in your own life and ministry to have longevity, longevity with their sacred rhythms. And you may say, well, I don't have a preaching team that I can be able to do that. You can, you can bring in someone from the outside. You can establish a relationship with them saying, for the next 12 months, I'd like to bring you in for six times. So you'll be externally part of our preaching team as I develop that in my ministry. All I'm saying to you is that strive to find a way that you are not empty. You're not empty. When my oldest daughter was a student at Rutgers, I went on the campus to visit Danielle. When I drove on the campus, instantly this security officer flagged me down. Pull over, pull over. So I'm saying, what did I do? So I wound my window down. He said, I said, officer, what did I do? He said, oh, you didn't do anything. But would you help me? I said, what would you like me to do? He said, do you see that car behind you that's pulled over on the side of the road? That lady in the car actually ran out of gas. As an officer on the campus, I am not authorized to leave the campus. She has a red container. 
would you mind just taking her to the nearby gas station, it's a mile away, get gas in that container, bring it back, I'll help her put the gas in the car. I said, sure, officer. So I swung around, I had the lady in my car and drove a mile away. And so I asked her, so what brings you to the campus, to Rutgers? She said, oh, I work on the campus. And then I said, what happened when you ran out of gas? She said, oh, this happens so often. <laughs> and, but she said, but um, I anticipate. So I have this red container I carried in my trunk <laughs> that when it happens, I anticipate. I, I'm not going to get stuck. Now, I used to watch cartoon as a boy. As a boy. And you know cartoon when you want to say something bad, you can't, so you just have stars and all kinds of geometric shapes that go on in your head. All of a sudden, a cloud just whooped right over my head, and all kinds of things, all kinds of figures in my head saying that this lady's an idiot. I mean, this one, this one, I, I couldn't say it, but the, the, the figures in my cloud above my head was saying it. I'm saying, could you imagine? She drives around keeping that red container in her car and not planning ahead that when the needle gets to a quarter tank or a third of a tank, low, Fill it up. Don't even wait until light comes on the dashboard that says get gas. Don't wait for that. Because some people I've heard, they put black tape over that light because it, it bothers them. And so, and I'm saying to you in ministry, we're laughing, but I'm wondering how many of you have a red container in your Bibles that you're carrying around and you find yourself tanked out on the side of the road and this has happened four or five times a year because you didn't anticipate that after a long series on prayer, or that long series on renewing strength in your marriage, or that long series on walking with God, that you took a hiatus and you started looking at sweetie you know, over there, you know, and start you know, eyeing some secretary and saying it's the devil. And even the devil said you should have carried around a red tent. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea is that you should learn that to have some sacred rhythms in your life because you know you're going to get empty. So don't wait until the gas, the, your spiritual or emotional gas tank is on quarter tank. Have those breaks. I don't always get it right, but I understand the necessity of it. Why? I want to finish well, and I want to have clean hands. I want to have clean hands and clean heart, and I don't want to leave scandal and disgrace. I don't want to leave the gospel when I transition to heaven I want to hear my master say to me, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. Let me pray with you guys. Go ahead, we can give the Lord a round of applause. Let's bow our hearts together. Father, thank you so much for the tug of the Holy Spirit on each of our hearts. I pray that each of us men would practice these habits in such excellent ways that we would always stay strong. Dear God, help us to run the course that you have laid out for each of us and to have clean hands and clean hearts and to finish well. Thank you, God, as we fellowship with one another. Let it be iron sharpening iron. Minister to each of us in areas of our weakness that we may find ourselves renewed and re rejuvenated when we return home. You've been listening to Leading in the City, brought to you by Lead NYC. Tune in next time and join us on the web at lead.nyc.